The following sermon by our guest speaker is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. I am honored to be here, very grateful. And just like she said, uh, we are long-term friends. And you know, I've always said this, a carpool is like a marriage. Any of you ever carpooled with people? It's like a marriage, isn't it? And if you can carpool together and still love the people you carpool with, that's a friendship, I tell you. And we did. (laughs) No. Um, Anyway, I am, again, honored uh, for you guys to let my husband and I come this weekend. Uh, We're thrilled to see your church. Just so encouraging what the Lord is doing here. Uh, Just such potential. And you are blessed to have Rick and Kim here. So I hope you know how blessed you are. Um, I am going to be teaching you on two subjects today. First, we're going to talk about the issue of modesty. And then in the second session, we're going to be talking about the topic of balance. Now, I am going to be flying through my notes, okay? So put your ears in high gear. You got to listen quickly. And to reassure you, you, does everybody have a syllabus? Anybody not have an outline? Okay, let me reassure you here. 99.5% of all the scriptures I'm going to throw out are in your syllabus. So you can rest, you can just lay back and listen. Okay, I've watched people through the years, and as I'm throwing out scriptures, and they're madly trying to write them down, and, oh, did you get that? What's it? You know... And then they don't hear what I just said. So it's just easier to have it all there in black and white. And when you have time later on, you can look back. Okay, it's all there. So I would encourage you just to kind of sit and relax and listen. And I hope that I will be able to say something that will be profitable for you. Uh, Whenever we study God's Word, it is always profitable. And this is one of my absolute favorite things in the world to do, is just to simply look at the Word of God with ladies and look at the truth and the wisdom that is there. Um, The first topic, modesty, is actually not the easiest thing to teach on. It's a whole lot easier to teach through a Bible passage. Um, I always approach this topic with fear and trembling. Um, And we're going to study it, though, because as the title says, modesty matters. And when it comes to our practical witness as Christian women, it matters a lot. And so that's why we're going to first address in this uh, lesson the theological foundation for modesty. And then the second half of the lesson is going to be more practical. And we're just going to look at the nuts and bolts of being modest. There's several risks to teaching modesty. The first one is that I know what I'm doing. I am inviting everyone who hears me to not only scrutinize what I'm wearing today, but basically to watch me for the next 20 years and see what I'm wearing. So that's, that's very risky. Uh, the second risk is that I always risk offending someone, and I, of course, don't want to do that. And I will tell you when some of the things I say are based more on personal preference, I'll try and be very honest and say 
This is an absolute non-negotiable from the word of God. Very clear. There are other things that I would just encourage you to go a certain direction on. But again, I'll be honest and say this is my opinion. And, you know, as I teach, I really want to be very compassionate. I don't want to be judgmental or negative. Um, and one reason I really want to err on the side of compassion is because I believe that modesty actually is a process. I have seen a tendency for women, including myself, to become more conservative with age and maturity. And I think it corresponds to an interest, um, an increase in wisdom about how we understand that our dress, our external appearance affects men. I think as women get less naive, they get more conservative. And let me say right up front, I do not have all the answers. I am not the fashion police, I am not the cleavage patrol, and I am not the modesty mafia. And I don't know everything. Um, you know, I especially don't want you to think I walk around on Sundays at my church with a little black book and I'm writing down things. I, I never wrote down a thing until I wrote this lesson, I promise. Um, and you know, actually, instead of walking around judging people, you know what I usually do? I walk around excusing people. I'm always saying, surely she doesn't know how that looks. Surely she just forgot to look in the mirror this morning. Um, I do choose to believe the best about people. I believe that much immodesty is actually due to either ignorance or just naivete. I know I was talking to a good friend uh, one time at church, and she made the point about her college-aged daughter. She said, you know, she is not setting out to be seductive. I know my daughter. That's not her goal. She just wants to be fashionable, okay? And I think that is true, especially with the younger gals, the junior high, high school, college 20-somethings. I think they just want to be fashionable. They just want to look nice. And that is the case. So as I deal with people on modesty and as you deal with people on this issue, I do encourage you, be compassionate, be understanding. Um, I have learned that the way you approach something makes a big difference in how people receive it. If you attack people on, on an issue, they tend to be very defensive. It's just our sinful hearts that tend to fight back. But if you come alongside someone with love and compassion and genuine concern, many times they will hear you uh, much more uh, willingly. Now, one reason I think that modesty is so difficult to address today is because our modern culture is so incredibly opposed to the biblical standard. You may remember several years ago the whole uh, Super Bowl incident with Janet Jackson. Do you remember that? The, what do they call it, a wardrobe malfunction? Yeah, I would call it that. Um, but you know, that was a funny thing. I was actually surprised at all the uproar about it. I was I was encouraged to know that many people were were offended by it. But on the other hand, I was surprised because I said, you know, every time I go to the mall, 
I see so many things that are just one short back, I mean, one um, step back from that. And yet you see it all the time. Nancy Lee DeMoss has written a great little book that I do want to recommend to you. It's called The Look. And it's not that easy to find. You can probably find it online somewhere. But she makes some great observations about modesty in that book. One thing she says is, again, how diametrically opposed the biblical standard is to our current world standard. The world tells us that beauty is external and physical. The Bible says that beauty, true beauty, is internal and it's spiritual. The world says you should dress for people to notice you. The Bible says we dress to please God. We dress to glorify Him. The world tells us the purpose of clothing is to uncover and to reveal. The Bible says the purpose is to cover and to conceal. And as Christian women, we must keep in mind that we are to look different from the world. There should be something different about us. Romans 12:1 tells us not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed. And as Christian women, when it comes to modesty, we are not to dress just like the women of the world. When I go to the mall, I don't expect to see modesty, and I am never disappointed, okay? I don't expect it there. But when I come to church with my Christian sisters, I do. And unfortunately, I'm sometimes disappointed here. I heard a series on modesty once uh, from a college pastor. You might have heard of him. His name was Rick Holland. Excellent series. And he began the series with the story of the emperor's new clothes. And he made the point that just like the emperor... Those who wear revealing clothes believe the lie that they're not really indecent. They're not really immodest. And too many times the onlookers that are around are afraid to speak the truth for fear of being thought ignorant or old-fashioned or the worst thing of all. Somebody might say, you're, you're so legalistic. Ooh, that's the ultimate insult. And that's what happens. We see immodesty and we hold our tongue and we go, I better not say anything about that. Another illustration of this would be the, the old story of the frog in the boiling water. You've heard this, you know, that you can throw a frog in a pan of boiling water. Well, he's no dummy. He's going to jump out, but you can put him in cold water and turn it up, turn it up slowly, slowly, slowly. And he won't realize what's happening, and he will boil to death before he realizes it. And I really think this is what has happened in our churches, is that modesty, it's happened so imperceptibly over the years that modesty is boiling to death in some of our churches. So today, again, we're going to start with the theological foundation for modesty. Why should we be modest? What in the Word of God encourages us to be modest? And then the last half of the lesson, we'll talk about the, uh, the practical ramifications of that. So as, if you want to, please follow along in your outline, and you can track with me. 
Let's talk first about the need for modesty. Modesty is necessary first because of the fall. Think about the Garden of Eden. Think about how perfect and beautiful it was there for Adam and Eve until they sinned, until they chose to please themselves, to turn away from God, and they made the choice to sin. What was the very first thing that happened after the fall? Think of that. They did what? They realized they were naked, right? The very first practical effect of the fall is that they suddenly realized they were naked, they were ashamed, and they were looking for fig leaves to cover cover themselves. So I think that, honestly, is huge, that the very first result of the guilt of sin was the recognition that they were immodest. And so I think that tells us what an important and foundational area this is. So as you study Genesis 3, you will see that clothing is a direct result of the fall. Before the fall, Adam and Eve had no fear that their nakedness could ever be used for evil purposes. But when sin came into this world, it changed everything. And the innocence of nakedness was lost forever. And after Genesis 3, whenever nakedness is mentioned in the Bible, except in the context of marriage, it is always associated with the concept of shame. So, first, modesty is necessary because of the fall. Another reason that it's necessary is because of temptation, okay? First of all, it's necessary because of the similarities between how men and women are tempted. James 1, 14 and 15 says that we are tempted when we're drawn away by our own desires. And this applies equally to men and women. We are tempted by our own sensual desires, and we are all, both men and women, susceptible to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. But there's another very important reason that modesty is very necessary, and that is because of the difference in how men and women are tempted. I don't know if you have noticed it yet, but men and women are different. Okay, very different. And one of the main differences that is very crucial here is that God, in his wisdom, has designed men to be more visually oriented. Okay, women tend to be more verbal. Men tend to be more visual. Now, I'm sure there are a few exceptions, but I'm just talking about in general. God designed a man to be attracted to and to appreciate the beauty of his wife. In Proverbs 7, there's a very interesting scripture. And this is where Solomon in the Proverbs is talking about the harlot, the prostitute. And in Proverbs 7.10, he says, And there a woman met him with the attire of a harlot. 
The Bible specifically calls attention in this verse to the way that an immoral woman dresses. Why? Because that is one of the main ways that a man is tempted. Now think about it. Think of all scripture. Can you think of one scripture that talks about how an immoral man dresses? I can't think of any. I have studied it. I can't find any. Why not? Because for most women, sight is not a major avenue of temptation. I'm not saying it's not involved at all, but it's not the major avenue like it is for a man. Men are tempted by what they see. And that is just the way that God created them to be more visual. Um, in Job, Job 31, Job says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? Think of David. When all of David's trouble started, what was he doing? He should have been off fighting wars, but he was at home and he was walking on his balcony. And it says what? He saw. He saw Bathsheba. He saw a woman bathing. Again, men are much more susceptible to be tempted through the eyes than women. This is why the whole pornography industry is aimed at men, at putting visual images before men. Our poor men, our husbands, our brothers, our sons, they are tempted everywhere they look in this world. TV, movies, billboards, magazines, the internet. My heart goes out to them. And I feel like when they come to church, this should be the one time during the week that they can rest. They can come here and have just a little bit of a break from this unrelenting temptation that they face every day out there in the world. Now, let me clarify this and make it very clear. Immodesty is no excuse for lust. A man cannot control what women wear, but he can control what he looks at. So the bottom line is this. It is still the man's responsibility. But ladies, they don't need any help sinning. Okay? Don't be guilty of feeding sinful thoughts by the way you dress. Nancy DeMoss in her book makes a great statement here. She said, this isn't to suggest that men are not responsible for their thought life or their behavior. They are. And they have to learn how to walk with God and bring those thoughts under the control of Christ. However, as Christian women, our clothing choices can either help men succeed morally or can put temptation in their path that they may find it difficult to overcome. If there is anything in our dress that is sensual, are suggestive. You are inviting the men that see you to go somewhere in their imaginations that they should not go. And the sad thing today is they don't have to go very far because there's so much already revealed. There is so much blatant immodesty all around us. I mentioned Bathsheba just a minute ago, and let me say one more word about her. Proverbs 7, where I just read the verse, that is talking about a clearly immoral woman that most Christian women would not identify with. But I like 
to use Bathsheba's example because although she sinned, overall scripture seems to indicate that she was a godly woman. Uh, Solomon spoke very highly of her in the Proverbs and what she taught him. She does not appear to have intentionally set out to seduce David, but she was very careless, she was naive, and she allowed herself to be in a place where she was a temptation to David. Now, again, I'm not excusing David. Okay, He was absolutely wrong, and he was held accountable, and for the rest of his life, he paid the price for the consequences of what he did. His sin was deliberate, while it could be argued that hers was simply careless. But look at the results of what happened there, not only for her husband Uriah, for the baby that died, for the rest of David's kingship, for really what happened between David and Bathsheba affected the entire nation of Israel. And so you have to wonder what would have happened if she had been more careful, if she had just been more wise and had taken measures to make sure that no one except her own husband, saw her unclothed. She could never have foreseen all the tragedy that resulted from their encounter. And I honestly think there are many women who, just like Bathsheba, are simply careless when it comes to modesty. They've just never thought deeply on these things. So that's what I want to talk about today. I want to challenge you to think deeply about this. All right, let's look at the goal of modesty. Before I tell you what our goals should be, just remember a couple of key points. Goals begin in our hearts. They begin internally. And I've given you some scriptures there that you can look up later. Um, Proverbs 4 tells us to keep our heart with all diligence because out of it come the issues of life. As I thought about this lesson and as I was writing it, that, you know, the real issue is not what we wear. The, the foundational uh, issue here is what is the state of my, part, my heart. Because the real issue is what is in our heart. How you dress on the outside says a lot about who you are on the inside. We need to be honest with ourselves and ask ourselves, why do I dress like I do? What kind of reactions am I trying to get? Uh, there's a quote from Carolyn Mahaney's daughter, Nicole, and I thought it was great. She said, modesty is of the greatest importance because it honors God, but it also protects our brothers from sin. Women are sometimes ignorant of the effect our bodies have on men. But for the most part, if we're honest, we'll admit that sometimes we know exactly what we're doing. We enjoy the attention of men. And while it may seem harmless, this behavior is selfish and unloving towards our brothers in Christ. Instead of seeking to serve them by dressing modestly, we are sometimes focused on serving ourselves because we relish the attention. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be pleasant to the eyes of people. I want to be easy on the eyes, okay? I don't, I have no burning desire to be ugly, okay? Nobody wants that, you know? We all would like to be, again, pleasant to the eyes. For our husbands, those of us that are married, 
We want to be beautiful and attractive to our husbands, but we need to, again, be careful that that desire never becomes something we crave, okay? It should not cross that line and become an idol in our lives and become a pride issue. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And so this is one of those issues where we really need to examine our hearts. Psalm 139 says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and see if there is any wicked way in me. Our heart is what dictates how we dress. And you know, sometimes in talking to ladies through the years, I've realized it's not always even a modesty issue. I had a lady one time tell me that she was always modest, but at a period of her life, she said, I used to buy the most expensive clothes. I would go buy certain name brands, and I made sure that people saw those name brands. I wanted them to know I was buying that brand. Um, and so maybe it wasn't modesty, but it was still a heart issue. It may be fashion. There's ladies that are very concerned with fashion. They want to be up with the latest fashions, and they want, they want other people to notice that. Again, that's a heart issue. That's a pride issue. So we need to examine our hearts. So the goal begins in your heart, but our goals come out externally. They are expressed externally. And God always sees external actions as the proof of what is in the heart. And you could please study those scriptures I've given you. Mark 7:20, Matthew 12:34, they all talk, talk about the heart. The Matthew 12 scripture says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I think we could also say, out of the abundance of the heart, the body dresses. Always remember that your clothing says something about you. Our first impressions of someone generally are their outward appearance. When you walk into a room before one word comes out of your mouth, your clothes are making a statement. And you know, one thing we do have to guard against since we're talking about externals here, let me caution you against the temptation to become, to actually become legalistic in this area. What is legalism? We'll talk a little bit more in our second lesson about legalism, but just very quickly, legalism, legalism is an overemphasis on external things in the belief that this is what produces spirituality. It's very performance-based and very external-based. And unfortunately, what I have seen is this kind of mindset almost always leads to becoming self-righteous. And then the next step is to judge other people by those same external standards. You know what? You can be modestly dressed and still have a wicked heart. Or you can be immodestly dressed and just be naive. And you just need some older woman to come alongside you and help you. So again, I can't stress it enough. This is all about your heart. It's not just about what you wear. So while we do want to be concerned with modesty, 
we don't want to fall into the legalism where we're running around judging everyone. Um, again, if you ever have to lovingly confront someone on an issue, be humble, be gentle, be loving, and just like it says in Galatians 6.1, come with the attitude of humility, knowing that you could be tempted in exactly the same way. And I promise, and I know this from experience, because you can approach people different ways, and I have seen that when you come with genuine love, people respond in kind. All right, what are our goals? Very simple. The first one <clears throat> is to glorify God. The goal of every Christian should be to glorify God in every area of life, and that includes modesty. Christ sacrificed his life to pay for our sin, and we are bought with a price. Nancy Lee DeMoss says to remember this, you, every morning when you get up and stand before your closet, you're dressing a body that belongs to God. <clears throat> How we dress is all about the glory of God, just as everything in our lives should be. Now, there's another goal that we must have, and that is to please God. 2 Corinthians 5, 9, one of my favorite scriptures. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. That should be such an overarching goal of our lives every day. We want to please God. Everything about us, we want to please him because we love him. I think another way that we would please him is by loving what he loves. And he loves righteousness. And we don't have time to look at them, but I've given you a whole list of scriptures that talk about purity and righteousness. And you will see that this is a priority with God. And it's because it's the very essence of who God is. And if we want to please him just in our daily lives, we should be very concerned with reflecting what is right and good and pure in our own lives. All right, this is what we've talked about so far. We've talked about the need for modesty, the theological foundation for modesty, and the two major goals of modesty, which are to glorify the Lord that we love and to please him. Now, at this point, I'm going to turn a corner, and we're going to move. Oh, that's my North Carolina accent, gonna. We are going to um, begin to talk about the nuts and bolts of modesty. And I've called this the expression of modesty. Now, as we go through this, I want you to keep in mind the basic biblical principles we've already touched on. Number one, our bodies belong to God. If you're a child of God, you belong to him. Number two, our outward appearance reflects our inner condition. It reflects what's in our hearts. Number three, we are responsible to not lead others into sin. Now, modesty can be expressed many ways, but it is primarily expressed by how we, we dress. Now, very quickly, I'm going to touch on the two major passages. These would be the watershed passages on modesty in the Bible. One of them is 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10, and the other one... Um, is in 1 Peter 3. They're very similar. I just want to read them quickly. 1 Timothy 2 says, In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but 
which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Now, don't misunderstand what Paul is saying here. He's not saying we can't braid our hair or that we can't wear pearls. The issue in Paul's day is that the women professing to be believers were coming to church and they had gold and pearls and all these things woven through these fancy hairdos. They were sometimes wearing very expensive clothing. And to make it even worse, many of the prostitutes of that day would do the same thing, wear very expensive clothing, the elaborate hairdos. So these women were coming to church supposedly to worship, and they were actually being a distraction. At the worst, they were tempting the men around them. They were showing off their appearance, their wealth, whatever. So this is what Paul was addressing. When you study that passage in depth, and you really under, um, study those words that Paul uses there, he was exalting these qualities, orderliness, humility, and self-control. He was saying, when you dress, ladies, this is what we should see in your clothing. In 1 Peter 3, another passage, it says, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on of dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart. Here again, he's addressing the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Peter here is reminding us that as women, our beauty should not come from outward adornment, but from a spiritual character that is honoring to God. So you don't want to wear things that are immodest or things that are designed to attract attention. But again, be balanced here. In our second lesson, we're really going to talk about balance. And this is another issue where balance is crucial. You don't want to do too much on the outside, but you don't want to totally ignore it either. Many, many years ago, um, a lady named Melody Green wrote a great little pamphlet called Uncovering the Truth About Modesty. And I thought she had a great insight here. She said, I have seen people actually go to the other extreme and try to prove to others that they are more spiritual because of their lack of concern about how they look. But this too can be just another form of pride. So we don't want to do too much, but you don't want to not do anything, okay? Um, there is nothing spiritual about walking around looking like an unmade bed, okay? That does not make you more spiritual. I mean, I not many, and you all look lovely, lovely. Nobody here. But I have known a lady or two in my lifetime, and honestly, it looked like they woke up in the morning, put on their shoes, and walked out the door. I don't know about you guys, but honestly, when I wake up in the morning, I need help, okay? And the older I'm getting, the more help I need. So, but you know, I put on a little makeup, a little hairspray, do my hair, and it's not so bad, all right? Um, so be balanced here. And again, I think this really applies to the married women. After you get married, don't let yourself go just because now you're married. Okay, continue to put effort, not excessive effort, but put effort 
into your appearance, if for no other reason than for your husband, okay? You want to be beautiful for your husband. I realize not everybody's married here, but many of you who aren't today will be someday. Uh, when I go out with my husband, I don't want him to be embarrassed to be with me, embarrassed about how I look. So, you know, we put a little effort into it. Now, you might say, well, my husband should love me for who I am on the inside. And I agree, he should. But I will quote my father-in-law, who was a Baptist pastor for about 60 years. He's with the Lord now. But he used to love to say this. It's the old saying, maybe they have it here in, are we in Kansas or Missouri? We're in Kansas, I'm sorry. Um, maybe they have it here. Every old barn looks better with a fresh coat of paint. Okay, now I don't have a Bible verse for that, but it's, there's a little wisdom there. So again, but be reasonable, be balanced. I am not talking about plastic surgery, our tummy tucks, our six hours at the gym. Some women, even Christian women, can get way too focused on their external appearance, and it becomes an idol in their lives. So yes, we should take time to be good stewards of our body, to be healthy and fit. But if you're not careful, you will go to the extreme in this. There was a wonderful lady at our church in California named Sandy Kiesling, and I love what she said about this. She said, your character is the picture and your appearance is the frame. The frame should complement the picture and not distract from it. Okay? You want to be easy on the eyes. Okay? You don't want to be distracting to people. So... The key, don't pay too much atten attention to your appearance, but on the other hand, don't pay too little. All right, so we see from 1 Timothy and 1 Peter, we should dress in a way that's orderly and appropriate, modest, and in a way that demonstrates humility and self-control. Remember, we should always dress like women. In Scripture, we are forbidden to dress like the opposite sex. That doesn't mean you can't wear pants. Don't wear men's pants. Okay, don't make, don't wear clothes that were intended for men. You want to wear things that are feminine and that support the fact that you are a woman. Okay, now we're going to turn to the details, and I'm going to be specific, and I will do my very best to be tactful and tasteful. Um, and whatever I say, do not think I'm talking right to you. Okay, again, I'm not looking very carefully at any of you, <laughs> what you have on, but you all look lovely, I know. Uh, but don't get offended. Whatever I mentioned today, I've seen dozens of times, and I have nobody in mind, believe me. Um, say, let me, let me give you one more foundational principle as we go through these specifics. If you dress in a way that draws attention to a specific part of the body, and tempts a man to take a second and third and fourth look, it's wrong. Okay? I say that with no apology. It's wrong, and it's very unloving. Say you had a friend who struggles with her weight, and she's been dieting and exercising, and she's doing really well, and you know that she loves chocolate. Would you make her a chocolate cake and walk up to her and say, Here, look what I made for you? Of course not. That would be so selfish and unloving. 
Okay, that's a trite illustration, but I think it's not too far off from what some girls do and how they dress. I mean, here are the poor men around us doing their best to live godly lives, to fight temptation, to guard their eyes. And here are women at church dressing in such a way as to draw attention to the very areas the guys are trying so hard not to look at. Don't do that to your Christian brothers. The way we dress should draw attention to our face, to our countenance, all right? Not to specific parts of the body. We simply want to be an overall picture of loveliness, okay? We want to be pleasant to the eyes, and there's nothing wrong with that. Nancy Lee DeMoss says, ask yourself two questions as you decide what you're going to wear. Does it expose and does it emphasize? And I think that's a good place to start. And do remember this. I already commented on the issue of fashion. It's okay to be fashionable. It's not a sin to be fashionable as long as it does not lead you to violate the rules of modesty. Um, we don't have to dress like, you know, the pioneer women of the 1800s to be modest, all right? You can dress in a current way for this society in this day and time. Just make sure that what you wear does not compromise the biblical principles of modesty. Do not, I will encourage you, don't measure yourself against the popular fashions. I promise you will always be more modest than the girls at the mall, always, okay? But that is a false standard because we live today in an incredibly immodest world, okay? It is just blatant immodesty everywhere we look, and that's not just in the United States. That is really worldwide. You can still incorporate the current fashions as long as it doesn't become a modesty issue, I have had to learn as a mother what are the hills to die on and what aren't. Um, my oldest daughter, who's now 29, I remember when she was in junior high, and it was a long time ago, and I remember an issue that came up with her fingernail polish. She wanted to wear orange or green or purple fingernail polish. And now I think it's really funny, but I, we really agonized over that. It's like, well, I don't know if she can do that. I mean, I've always worn pink and red. I'm not sure I want her wearing, you know, green fingernail polish with, you know, stripes and white dots on it. But you know what? Now that I look back on that, I'm going, oh, that was nothing. That was, yeah, let her, I don't care what she wears on her fingernails. As You know, I would much rather be dealing with that than with, a modesty issue. I remember when she was in junior high, um, okay, now she's in junior high, she didn't want to wear hose. It's like, well, I've always worn hose. Yes, you wear hose to church. And I'll never forget her going, Mom, my discipleship leader doesn't wear hose. I'm going, oh, okay, well, that took away, okay. And I started looking around at church. None of the... Uh, you know, youth staff, college, none of them wore hose. So you know what? I'd much rather her have no hose with a decent length skirt than hose with a short skirt. 
And just as a follow-up in that, I can hardly remember the last time I wore hose. Uh, things change. <laughs> so anyway, so pick your hills to die on. Save, save your battles with your daughter or whoever for true modesty issues. Um, how many teenagers are here? Do we have any under the age of 20? Okay, I need to tell you something right away. Your mother loves you. Okay, your mother does not, it is not her goal in life to make you ugly and out of fashion, okay? She loves you. She's very wise, and she's thinking of your best. And when you go shopping with her, please keep that in mind, all right? I have been on those six-hour trips to the mall, I have, where we're both sitting there crying in front of Macy's by the end of it, where we cannot agree on anything, I understand that. Um, it's tough these days, especially for girls, much easier for boys. Um, you can't always shop at the teen stores, okay? You got to go to the more, the big department stores. The teen stores, the clothes are just so small. I mean, you can like go on a weekend trip and put your, you know, everything you pack in a Ziploc for the, <laughs> for the weekend. They're so small. So... Go to the bigger stores. Okay, we got to get going. Uh, listen fast. I'm going to give you three broad categories, and everything we address, I think, will fit in one of these. Is it too short? Okay, ask yourself these questions. Dresses and skirts, I am not going to give you inches, okay? I am just going to beseech you, stay around the knee, okay? Every inch that you go up from the knee it's getting more and more immodest, okay? I've seen a lot of nice outfit suits that stay in the area of the knee that are fine. I personally, I just love long skirts, so I, I don't think I have any that are right around. They're all longer than that just because I prefer that. Um, is it too short? Okay, tops, okay, this is basic. Don't show your midriff, okay? Do not do that. You go to the mall, and I wonder, is there any girl here who's not showing her midriff? Um, very common. Shorts, okay, are shorts, that, that's a difficult thing. What is too short when it comes to short? I had a friend that she used to always say, she told her daughters that, okay, put your hands down to your side, and your shorts should come to the end of your fingers. Not a bad guideline, unless she has really short arms, and that could be, yeah, that can backfire on you. Um, I will say this. Let me give you just a few non-negotiables. No short shorts, and you know what I'm talking about. Um, there's just no reason to do that. Um, the, fortunately, I guess a few years ago, the Bermuda shorts actually came back. That was wonderful. I never thought those would come back, but they did. So mid-length is bearable. Um, what is wonderful, and this is what I wear all the time in hot weather, is capris. I love capris. They're fashionable, they're cute, and I think overall very modest. So go for the capris. Another very challenging um, area is the swimsuits. So it's kind of like shorts. If you do want to wear shorts, just make them as modest as you can. Swimsuits, same thing. Um, let's be honest about swim, swimsuits. What do most swimsuits cover? They cover what your underwear would cover. 
Um, I read a booklet one time, and while I didn't agree with every conclusion in it, he made the point that if you wore a modest, what we would call today a modest one-piece one swimsuit, if you wore that in 1922, you would have been arrested for indecent exposure. That's what's happened in our culture. Uh, I heard a girl one time say this, um, when you really get honest, there really is no such thing as a modest swimsuit. And you might say, oh, that must have been, she must have been 80 years old. No, actually, that was my daughter when she was in college. And I think she was actually being more honest than a lot of girls her age. It's hard to make any swimsuit, even a one-piece, modest, because you look at all that is exposed. But I am realistic enough to think that you're not going to run home today and throw your swimsuit, if you have one, in the trash and say, oh, I'll never wear that again. Um, there are contexts. You know, we have play days with the moms with their little kids. You do things with just your family or just your husband. It's a more private thing. In our culture today, um, there, I, I can just say there may be reasonable expected context to wear a swimsuit in. So let me just say this: if you and you make your own your own conviction on this, I'm not telling you what to do. I am telling you myself. I have come to the point I'm personally not comfortable showing that much skin around anyone except my husband. Um, so again, you'll have to come to your own decision on this. But I will say this, a bikini is totally out. There's just no reason to be that immodest. If you're going to wear a swimsuit, don't wear anything that revealing. I would encourage you to wear, again, a one-piece that no, not low, not high-cut legs, Nothing like that. What's also nice is these days you have a lot of shorts, uh, wraps, skirts, sarongs, all sorts of things that you can wear over your swimsuit the whole time. And, you know, you have a play day with the other moms in the, in the church with their little kids. Just wear a nice, modest one piece and something over it. All right. But again, you make your own decisions on that. That's a tough one. That's a hard one. Okay, uh, second category, and I'm going fast. Is it too tight? This applies to tops, pants, dresses, and skirts. You just don't want to wear things too tight. And I have to be very tactful here. If you are, shall we say, endowed, okay, is that tactful enough? You have to be extra careful not to wear things too tight or in a way that emphasizes that part of the body. Um, this next one, okay, this is a preference issue, okay? Don't have a verse for this. This is preference. I am begging you, if you, well, please don't wear those thin, stretchy bras that are made of nylon or spandex, okay, that don't really, it's just material. It doesn't have a cup. Um, don't wear those. Um, for one thing, they don't really do that much good, okay? It's like you don't really have that much on. There's a lot of, um, they don't really support you, so there's a lot of motion going on, you know, as you walk. Um, they don't really camouflage anything. And another, th okay, let me 
and don't wear, if you do wear them, don't wear anything tight. Wear something loose over them. Um, don't wear anything that fits tight. There are three things in this world that should never go together, okay? That kind of stretchy, thin bra, a tight top, there's no men in the house, right? And a cold room, okay? You got it? Okay, that's as tactful as I can be. I mean, I have things, seen things at church that I just, oh, I just, I just can't believe. So anyway, you get my point. Okay, so don't wear, this doesn't mean you can never wear a knit top or a sweater. Just don't wear them too tight, all right? Uh, be careful. Sometimes it's not even... Uh, the tightness, it's the cut of the shirt. And we'll talk a little bit in the next section on too low. So tight is, is one of the major um, issues there, but there's other things besides that. Um, the main thing, and we'll talk again more about the low, don't wear loose tops. Sometimes you have a loose top, and it's actually not low, but it's so loose you bend forward to pick up your child or something, and the whole thing falls forward. Okay, be aware of that. Always, maybe don't wear them, but if you do, just be aware of that, and always put your hand there as you bend over. All right, dresses and skirts. We're talking about tightness. Don't wear dresses and skirts that are tight across your back. Especially don't wear the kind of thin, again, that thin, stretchy material that just really hugs the back of you, you have to think, ladies, what do you want? Do you want, as you walk by, do you want men staring at you as you walk by? If you wear tight uh, skirts, jeans, whatever, I guarantee that's what they're going to be tempted to do. I don't want that, and I don't think you do either. So we have to dress appropriately. Pants and jeans, you just need to have a little bit of slack in them. Now, I am not a baggy jeans person. I, I don't particularly care for baggy jeans, but I don't wear my jeans skin tight either. I try and have, you know, some slack, some wrinkles there. And now we're talking about tightness. This is a good time to talk about one other little thing, and that's the issue of weight. Um, no matter what I do now, every year I am inching up. And I have to watch it all the time to not let my weight begin to go up. If you, and I think most women, to some degree or another, are concerned with their weight, let me give you a few hints if you struggle with weight. Wear not the light colors, which make you look larger. Wear the dark. Black, dark colors always make you look smaller. Think about the patterns. Horizontal lines will widen you. Vertical lines slim you. And the main thing, and this relates to our topic here, do not wear your clothes too tight, okay? It's really the worst thing you can do because if you have any extra pounds, it will accentuate it. You don't have to wear a big tent dress. Um, no, that's just going to make you look like a big tent. No, you want to wear things that are body-lengthening clothes. Wear things that drape nicely on your body and aren't too tight. Um, you know, jackets, cardigans, like this sort of thing, a wrap, a 
whatever, these are wonderful and they lengthen you. You know, I always think they call these like cardigans. I call them camouflage, okay? Because they, you know, I find as I'm getting older, I'm just getting a little wider. This camouflages it. Okay, so I have a, I have a lot of wraps and jackets and all that. Um, okay, so think of that with tightness. Just be careful, tops, skirts, jeans. Don't wear them too tight. Okay, last one. Is it too low? And this would apply to tops that we wear and to jeans. Obviously, jeans don't wear the low jeans, okay? Because it's just too easy. You raise your arm, you think, oh, well, my top comes over it. Well, it, it comes over it until you raise your arms or you bend over. Um, tops, okay, read my lips, okay? Everybody watching? No cleavage. Okay, one more time. No cleavage, not even an inch. Cleavage is for your husband. And for you ladies that aren't married, okay, it's for your future husband. Um, when I first taught this lesson at Grace Church, I taught the junior high girls, the very first time I ever taught it. And I told them this, cleavage is for your husband. And so one of the moms caught me a few weeks later, and she said, thanks for your teaching on modesty. She said, my daughter really enjoyed it and learned some things. And she said, I had a top in my closet that I really decided, you know, it's a little too low. And she said, my daughter said, oh, no, mom. No, no, no. You can keep that and wear it on a date with daddy because Mrs. Hardy said that cleavage is for your husband. <laughs> okay. She was listening. Um, now I'm going to wade in. We're just a few minutes over. So let me keep talking fast. Um, I'm going to wade in on a subject that I know will hurt my popularity here, okay? But I'm going to do it anyway. Weddings and the strapless wedding dresses. Okay, I am swimming totally upstream, but I am going to appeal to you to think about the implications of all the strapless wedding dresses. I am fully aware that that's you can hardly find anything else. It is the fashion. It's everything you see. But I submit to you that cleavage is cleavage and skin is skin. And I don't care what the occasion is. If it's a formal occasion, if it's a wedding. I do know that people wear things to weddings that they would never wear anything of the sort to church. And when you think about it, a wedding in many ways is like a, a worship service. You are joining together in the name of the Lord. There is usually the reading of the word, the proclamation of the word in the message. There's prayer. And again, I see people dressed at weddings like I promised they would never dress on a Sunday. Now, I'm sure there's people here who wore strapless wedding dresses. I understand that. I have no idea who you are. Um, I have seen in many, many weddings, not only that my husband has performed, but um, just weddings we've been to, I've seen through the years maybe one or two strapless wedding dresses that were relatively modest. They weren't, they didn't show any cleavage. They didn't, you know what happens with strapless, you turn and it gaps. I don't know if they had it glued on or what, but it, I must admit it didn't gap. Um, but still, there's that bare look. And I will tell you, when my husband was on staff out in California, they would have they would talk about this at times in the staff meetings. The pastors, guys, how can we address this? 
the issue of immodest wedding dresses. And I've really analyzed it. What is it about that strapless look that is a little bit provocative? Um, and I finally realized what it is. When you take a shower and you step out and you wrap the towel around you, it's exactly the same look, okay? Now, I know it's your wedding. You have on something under that, but it's still the same look. And I remember when I was working on this lesson, my husband spoke with all of our Bible study leaders in our big um, Sunday school class. We had about 12 Bible studies, and the men that led those those small groups were godly men, godly men that loved their families, loved their wives. And I remember my husband asked me, he said, guys, be really honest with me. When you go to a wedding and you see a girl in one of these strapless dresses, which the majority of the time, I still insist, there's often cleavage, it's just very immodest. He said, do you see just an overall vision of loveliness, of beauty? Or is there anything that is a little bit sensual, a little bit provocative about that girl? And he said it was, it was very revealing. He said they all kind of, well, you know, kind of hem-hawed around. And almost all of them had to admit, well... You know, it's a little bit provocative. And again, these are godly men that love the Lord, but they were just being honest. So I know, again, I am swimming upstream. I know I'm going against the whole culture here. But I'm just asking you to think about that. I believe that if there is ever a day in a woman's life that she should look chaste and pure and innocent, it's her wedding day. Okay, you can put, as my oldest daughter did at her wedding, you can take a strapless dress, put a little sleeve here. If you need a little lace to raise it, it's fine. Okay, but I would encourage you to think about the issues of the strapless. All right, uh, we've got to wrap up here. So, too short, too tight, too low. Um, I have a pastor friend who always says, give your clothes the proposition test. If you can look up it, down it, or through it, don't wear it. That's good. Up it, down it, or through it. All right. I'm going to, I've told you a lot of my um, thoughts on this, but in these last few minutes, I want to tell you the thoughts of some men. Okay, this is what a few men, and these, I've gotten them out of books, I've gotten them off the internet, these are Christian men who are struggling in this area. And this is what they say. When a woman dresses immodestly, it makes it difficult to see her as a sister in Christ. There is a constant battle going on as I'm talking with her. Communication becomes difficult as I'm trying to listen to her because I'm also trying to fight temptation. So that's just your average guy in the churches. Okay? Another guy says this, each and every day is a battle, a battle against my sin, a battle against temptation, and a battle against my depraved mind. Every morning, I cry out for mercy and strength and a renewed conviction to flee youthful lust. To be honest, when I see a woman provocatively dressed, I don't know the truth, the truth of why she chooses to dress in the way she does. All I know is that the way she presents herself is bait for my sinful mind to latch onto, and I need to avoid it at all cost. 
This one I thought was particularly heart-wrenching. This guy said, I look forward to going to church on Sunday morning for many reasons, not the least of which is I am hoping for a short break from the visual temptation I fight all week long. Unfortunately, there have been a number of times when I'm in the middle of a wonderful morning at church, hearing God's word preached, focusing on the Savior that I love, and all of a sudden, you walk by in your short, tight dress or your top with the low neckline, and in a split second, my battle to keep my mind pure is raging once again. I am acutely aware of my own responsibility in all this, so I will not be unfair and say that you have ruined my morning of worship. But it would also not be an exaggeration to say that you have been a significant hindrance. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to know that the way I dressed was a significant hindrance to one of my brothers in Christ on a Sunday at church. So... Uh, one last quote from a pastor who actually was teaching his own church on this. He says this, I am not telling anyone what they can and cannot wear. This is not an attempt to establish a sort of Christian dress code. That type of legalistic approach never will solve anything. I am simply asking that my sisters be more thoughtful and considerate when choosing what they wear. As a man, I have a perspective that you do not have, and I am asking you to be teachable. I believe that all who are teachable and desire to honor the Lord will be willing to receive instruction on these things, even if it's sometimes hard for you to understand a man's point of view. So, in conclusion, the Bible tells the, us that instead of being immodest, we should be clothed with strength and honor and humility. And so at, in your outline, I've given you a lot of scriptures. I hope you really will take time. You know, many of you, you may not struggle with modesty yourself, but I guarantee there's ladies in your life that do. And it may be you're able to share some of this. Um, come alongside them with humility and with love, not with condemnation, and help them see that this is a very important responsibility that we have as Christian women. I've also given you in your syllabus a little excellent tool called the Modesty Checklist. And it has some, again, some great insights in there. I've listed there a prayer from Nancy DeMoss. And I would encourage you to read over that. And I would challenge you to pray that just in the privacy of your own prayer time with the Lord. And just commit to Him that you will do everything in your power to be modest, to bring glory to him, and to, again, intentionally do everything you can to not be any sort of a temptation to the people around you. And I, can, I promise, if you will make that commitment, I know that the Lord will bless you for that commitment, and you will know the joy that comes from being obedient and from living your life in a way that glorifies him. Let's close in prayer quickly. That was great food. I, I was still full from lunch, so I couldn't eat much, but it was good. All right. Are we still friends, basically? Especially the young ones. I want to be your friend. I really do. <laughs> um, 
This lady right here came up and gave me a very good suggestion. She said, if you're one of those endowed people, what you can do with your tops is turn them backwards. And I told her, this tank top is backwards. I will tell you, it's too low on the other side, so I just wear it backwards. And now you know. Um, something else I forgot to show you, and I just, it's important. So before I start the second lesson, I'm finishing up the first. Okay. As we know, this is a cami, a camisole, and contrary to public opinion, this is not meant to be worn alone, okay? This is intended to be under something else. Um, it camouflages, it covers up. It's even better if you have something that's uh, kind of flesh-colored. It just blends in, it just kind of, it keeps there from being... Uh, you know, a, a lot of lines under a thinner blouse. Nancy Lee DeMoss says that we live in a day when underwear has become outerwear, okay? And um, so just remember, this goes under things. Now, I see a lot of ladies that they don't seem to understand that. And this has become outerwear. All right, let's get started. And let's talk about the second um, thing that we want to address today. And does everybody have a syllabus? Very important syllabus, everybody? Okay. Um, again, especially on this one, the first lesson, but even more on this one, please take the time just in the next, you know, few days or weeks and look up all these scriptures that I give you in my syllabus. I don't do that just for busy work. I really want you to see where I get a lot of the things I say. I always tell people, if you struggle with anything I talk about today, I am not going to change you, okay? Just whatever I say today, that's not going to instantly change you. What will change you is your own personal time in the Word of God, okay? If I have made progress in any area of my life, it's always come from just my own personal time in the Word. Just studying it, pondering it, meditating on it, memorizing it, and allowing the Lord to teach me. All right? And that's where the change comes. The, the Word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the deepest parts of it, of us, and it brings about change where nothing else will. And that's why, as you know, the word is so important. And that's why I give you so much scripture in these outlines, because I know that that is where the change comes from. So um, again, if I don't get to talk to any of you anymore, again, thank you for letting me come today. I've enjoyed just being able to speak with a few of you. Um, this next subject is something that I think all of us deal with at one time of our lives. And I deal with it all the time. I always tell people, you know what I always teach on? I teach on the things that the Lord is working on me about. I'm usually teaching to myself first and then to you. And that's very true about this next topic. And I've called it keeping your balance, avoiding the extremes of life. And as I begin this, I want to tell you a story. 
Many of you are mothers who have children, and you tell them stories at night. I want to tell you a story. The date was January the 30th, 1962. The place was the State Fair Coliseum in Detroit, Michigan, where the Ringling Brothers Circus was featuring the high-wire act of the legendary Walinda family, or the Flying Walindas, as they had come to be known. Led by the patriarch of the family, a German man named Carl Walinda, they were without doubt the greatest tight-wire walkers in all of circus history. That night, they were once again preparing to perform their most famous stunt, the amazing three-level pyramid. This trick consisted of four men standing on a line on the wire, yoked together by shoulder bars. On top of the shoulder bars stood two more performers who in turn supported a woman who first sat in and then impossibly stood on top of the chair. So you had these three levels. The Walindas never used a safety net, thinking that it gave them a false sense of security and bred carelessness in their performers. They had done this dangerous stunt for 14 years, successfully accomplishing it hundreds of times. But tonight would be different. They carefully formed the pyramid and they began to move out slowly across the wire. But then the unthinkable happened. The first man on the wire, a young man named Dieter, lost his balance and fell, pulling the two men immediately behind him, down with him, leaving one man standing alone on the wire. Carl, the patriarch, and his brother fell to the wire from the second level, with Carl suffering a cracked pelvis in the fall. The girl who was on the top, who was Dieter's younger sister, fell on top of Carl, and although he was in extreme pain, he miraculously held her by one arm until a neck could be brought beneath her. Of the three men that fell, Carl's son was paralyzed from the waist down for the rest of his life. The other two men, Carl's young nephew Dieter and his son-in-law Richard, plunged to their deaths on the arena floor as 7,000 people watched in horror. Balance is a crucial skill. When we lose our balance in some area of our lives, the results may not be quite as dramatic as they were for the Walindas that night in Detroit, but they can be just as devastating, not only for us personally, but for all of those around us. And so today what we're going to do is discuss the most common areas of life where we are tempted to go to the extreme and be unbalanced. Sometimes we're like giant pendulums of a clock. We're over here and we're out of balance. We're too extreme on something and we realize it. So we swing back, but we don't stop here. We just keep right on going and we end up over here. Now, am I telling you I have found the perfect balance in all areas of my life? Absolutely not. 
like I said, I'm teaching myself first here. Sometimes I, I realize that I am unbalanced on something. I'm giving too much time to this and not enough to this. I'm focusing too much on this and not enough on this. There's a very interesting passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and it talks about the Christian life. We are running this race. We are competing for the prize, and it says everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now, when you study that word temperate, this is what it means. Moderate, self-restrained in action or speech, balanced. If we are going to be victorious in the Christian life, balance and self-control are crucial. Now, before we begin, I'll tell you that there is one area of your life where it is okay to be unbalanced. In fact, you should be unbalanced here. And that is in your personal love and devotion for the Lord Jesus Christ. Your love for Christ should know no limits and no bounds. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, the children of Israel were told to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. When we go to the Psalms, we listen to King David. What does he say? Stuff like, I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. In Psalm 63, he says, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you. Psalm 73, he said, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none, no one, nothing I desire besides you. In Jeremiah 29, it says, this is God speaking, and he says, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Not part of it, not a little bit of it, with all your heart. We go on to the New Testament. What does Paul say? In Philippians 1.21, he says, for me to live is Christ. In Philippians 3, where he talks about all that he he gave, he gave up. He says, I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Now, those scriptures do not sound very balanced, do they? All through the Bible, the scriptures confirm that we should be absolutely passionate about our relationship with God. Our problem, ladies, is not that we love him too much. We love him far too little. So I would encourage you to do everything you can to stoke the fires of your love for God. Read his word, study his word, memorize it, listen to good teaching, listen to good preaching, read good books, worship him, praise him, focus on the character of God, focus on the majesty of Almighty God. And in this one area, it is perfectly right to be absolutely consumed with wanting to know and to love God. But... In virtually every other category of life, the call is for self-control and balance. 
And I really think at the, at the heart of the Christian life is this quest for balance. Now, what we're going to do, and again, we're going, we're going to move fast, so listen fast. We're going to look at major categories of life where we have a tendency to go to the extreme. It's not an exhaustive list. I'm sure you can think of other things. But I think we'll touch on all the major areas. And I think you will realize as we go through it that many of the problems that people deal with, many of the problems that people come in for counseling for, it's nothing more than that they are out of balance, that they've gone to the extreme in some area of their lives, and it's causing problems for them and all the people that are closest to them usually. Now, the first category I'm going to talk about is very important for Christian wives and mothers, and especially if you're very active in ministry. And again, I know that this we have married and we have single, but if you're single, many of you will be wives and mothers someday. Um, what I'm going to do with each one of these categories is we will try to determine what the correct balance is from the scriptures, and then we'll talk about what it looks like when you're off balance in one way or the other. We're going to look at the symptoms, okay? I am an old nurse, so I'm thinking medically here, and we're going to diagnose ourselves uh, just a little bit and look at the symptoms and see if that will tell us something about ourselves. Now, this first one, I have called the balance between family and ministry. Family and ministry are both wonderful blessings from God. And as a believer, if you're a child of God, you have obligations in both areas. And it's specifically, if you are a wife and mother, the Bible has much to say about your responsibilities to your husband and children. I've given you scriptures there. You can read later from Titus, from 1 Timothy. And you know what they say. It says, if you are a wife and mother, you are to love your husband, love your children, be homemakers, bear children, manage the house. Um, the Proverbs 31 woman, what does it say? She watched over the ways of her household. So we have responsibilities. But if you're a member of the body of Christ, you also have a duty to minister to the other people in the body. In Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, it talks about the spiritual gifts that we have been given to serve our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are told to do many, one, what we call the one another's. There's over 50 verses that talk about the one another's. We are to love one another, forgive one another. We're to exhort, to edify, to admonish, to restore. You cannot do these things if you're not involved in other people's lives. You have to be interacting with people to do those things. So it's clear that the Bible validates both the importance of family and ministry. But the problem is that there are only 24 hours in a day. And both of those things can require a great deal of time. We have to make choices. And finding the balance between these two is sometimes difficult. We go to the Word of God to find the system of priorities. First of all, Scripture obviously tells us we never put anything or anyone above our relationship with the Lord. 
Exodus 20, I am the Lord your God, and you shall have no other gods before me. Nothing above that. Our relationship with God must be above all else. But when we begin to talk about the horizontal realm, our human relationships, Scripture gives us a definite order. If you are married, after your relationship with the Lord, the husband-wife relationship is the priority human relationship. In Genesis, it says, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they become one flesh. In Ephesians 5, the picture of the husband and wife is what? It's a picture of Christ and his church. And this tells us the marriage relationship is very unique. I am not one flesh with anyone other than my husband. Okay, not my children, not my best friends, no one except my husband. And again, my relationship with my husband is to be a picture of Christ and his church. And that is not said about any other human relationship. Now, where did the kids in the family fit in? First Timothy 3 talks about the qualifications for an elder. And it makes the comment that an elder must rule his own house having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the, children, the church of God? And remember that the elder, I understand not all the men in the church are elders, but the elder is the example for the rest of the church. So that tells us the children are important here. Our relationship with our children is important. The point is this, scripture teaches that we must never put ministry to other people above ministry to our own family. If you are neglecting your God-given responsibilities as a parent, there is a good probability that eventually your household may not be in order. Now let me give you one important reminder. Please don't get confused and equate your relationship with God with outside ministry. Okay, those are not the same thing. There will be times when we are completely committed to the Lord, and yet the wisest thing that we can do is step back in our ministry duties to other people. But what I have seen, again, not only in my own life but in others, is people tend to get too busy in outside ministry, and it begins to hurt their family. Here's the bottom line. If you are married and you have children, your children need to know beyond a shadow of a doubt, that they come before the other people at the church. We love the other people at the church. They are our church family. But your children need to know that they hold a special place in your heart. We want our children to grow up loving the church. But if you slight your children, spending too much time being busy with this and this and this, and you don't have enough time for your children, you can actually teach your children to resent the church. And I would love to tell you I've never seen that happen, but I can't because I have seen children that have walked away when they got older. And sometimes one of those factors with it, they never, their parents never quite had the time for them that they needed. Now, again, be balanced. We're talking about balance. Family is tremendously important, but we still have to 
not fall into what I call the us for and no more mindset, where you only care about your family. You don't want to become what we call child-centered and make idols out of your children. There are times, and again, my husband is a pastor, so there have been times growing up with my children, they've had to sacrifice for the sake of the ministry. But they have also seen us sacrifice for them. Sometimes, especially on holidays, sometimes we had a whole house full of fam, a whole house full of people. Other times, we specifically made sure it was just our family, just our kids. And our kids, I think they're all adults today, but I think if you question them, I think they would tell you that they know that, bottom line, we'd rather be with them than anybody else because we love our children. You want them to understand that. Now, especially for you young moms that have little babies and toddlers, I have a word for you. There are different seasons of life, okay? And when you have babies and small children, they must be your priority, okay? There will be times when you have greater capacity for outside ministry than other times. When you have little kids like that, you need to pour your life into your, other, to your little kids, okay? Your babies, they need you. God gave them to you. Now, does that mean you can't do anything? No. Just be wise in what you do. Do ministry that can be done at home. Do ministry that doesn't take a great deal of time, that doesn't take you away from your children. Uh, you can pray for people. That's ministry. You can make meals for people. And, you can, and it's very important when you are doing such things, involve your, your kids. Sit them down with you and have them pray with you. When you're making a meal, let them help you. When you go to the house, let, I used to do this all the time, let my kids take it up to the door. Okay, Make them see ministry as a natural part of life. Teach them that we love the people at the church. This is our church family. And that way they grow up with a love for ministry instead of a resentment. There's been times along the way that I got too busy. You know, we were eating pizza, you know, six nights a week, you know, picking up stuff. At, and I'm going, okay, this is crazy, too busy. And I would cut back. And, you know, I, through the years, I've discipled um, some ladies, you know, a, a handful of ladies, one-on-one, -on -one, long-term type relationships. And I used to feel really guilty about that. Like, man, I ought to be discipling 15, 20 ladies, you know. And finally, the Lord showed me, you know what, Pam, you actually have been discipling someone for 29 years, 27, 22, my youngest now is 19. My children are my main disciples. They are the disciples that God gave to me and no one else. And shame on me if I am so busy discipling everybody else and I neglect the four main disciples that the Lord gave me. So there's a balance, all right? Look at your sheet and you'll see the extremes. If you are too heavy on the family, you can be very self-centered. You can idolize your children. Um, if, and you will not minister to other people. If you're too much on the ministry, if you're too heavy on that, your priorities are wrong, and eventually you may reap problems in your family. All right, second one, self-denial and liberty. 
Our Christian life begins with self-denial. In Luke 9, it tells us to be a disciple means to follow Christ and deny self. And we know that to live a holy, godly life, there are many things we need to say no to. Titus 2 tells us we are to deny ungodliness and worldly lust, and we are to live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Sometimes there are neutral and even good things that we just need to say no to. So, yes, the Christian life is a life of self-denial. But we study the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians also, and especially in chapter 5, talks a lot about liberty. It tells us we have been called to freedom, called to liberty. Uh, Galatians 5.1, another verse says, Stand fast in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and don't be entangled in a yoke of bondage. So the Bible is also clear that we have freedom in Christ. And there are many things that God has given us to enjoy. So we have liberty, but we also have a balance here. The balance is that we cannot ever let our freedom lead us into sin. In Galatians 5, another verse tells us not to use our freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So there is a balance, and you can go to the extreme on either side. Let me give you a definition very quickly. You might want to write down a definition of Christian liberty. Christian liberty is the freedom to do what's right without a system of rules. Okay, the freedom to do what's right without, I would call it the bondage of a system of rules. You're not just living by rules. There is a time for rules, yes, but you're not in bondage to them. Look at your extremes. The first extreme, if you are really big on this self-denial thing, is we tend to become very self-righteous. We look at what we do and... You know, we're, we're denying this and we're denying that. And just our sinful flesh be, begins to get very proud about there. Um, we also can fall into legalism. Now, again, legalism in the Bible generally is referring to salvation, okay, to the fact that we cannot earn our salvation. But today, when we use the word legal, legalistic or legalism, we are generally referring to the issue of sanctification, not salvation, but sanctification, which is all about how we live our Christian lives, and it has to do with our spiritual growth. That is sanctification. So I'm going to give you another definition of legalism as it is related to sanctification, and you could write this down. Legalism is judging your own spirituality and that of others by man-made rules that are not in Scripture. Okay, let me read that again. Legalism is judging your spirituality and that of others by man-made rules that are not spelled out in Scripture. Another term that we could use, and I think this is actually more accurate, is the term works righteousness. Works righteousness is the mistaken idea that we can accumulate righteousness 
by what we do and don't do. Again, it's very performance-based. When a person begins to focus on the externals and then begins to judge everyone else by those same external things, he's being legalistic, okay? And again, I've known a few people through the years that I really would say, you know, just their whole approach to life is very legalistic. It's all about externals, what I do, um, how I look. And if I had to come up with one adjective for those type of people, it would be this, joyless. They have no joy in their lives. It's just all duty, and I have to do this, and I have, oh, no joy. The crucial issue here when it comes to the self-denial and liberty thing and the works righteousness is that we must learn to distinguish between biblical issues and preference issues. Now, obviously, a biblical issue is something that's spelled out clearly in Scripture. A preference issue is something that's not. It's just something we have a conviction on. And we get into trouble when we take preference issues and we judge other people as if they were biblical issues. Okay, And that is the heart of legalism. Now, again, yes, we need standards. Yes, there is a time when we need rules. With your children, especially when they're young, they need rules. We had house rules. House rules make life go easier. But as we get older, we must be motivated by something other than just rules. So we need standards. We need to live holy lives. But we must remember that our righteousness does not come from us. The only righteousness we will ever have comes from what Christ did on the cross for us. Never forget the gospel, okay? Never get away from the gospel. I have heard more than one pastor say this. You know, we think that the gospel is just what happens when we get saved, and then we spend the rest of our lives trying to measure up. No, the gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian life. The gospel is the A to Z. Okay, You never get away from what Christ did for us on the cross. We are to constantly remember what Christ has done for us. And then we are motivated to obey out of love and adoration. Remember, we talked about glorifying God and pleasing God. And we're not obeying just out of duty and obligation. Yes, we do obey. We're told in Scripture to be obedient. And we do that, again, just because we love Christ. But there is also that love that just springs up out of your heart. If you love Christ so much, it is a joy to obey. It's not a drudgery. Too often as Christians, we fall into the older brother syndrome, where we're just trying to measure up, trying to be good. You remember that older brother. He, was, he didn't realize it, but he was as far from the father as the prodigal was. If we are regenerate, if we are truly children of God, we are completely accepted, and therefore we obey we're not obeying in order to be accepted. And believe me, there is a world of difference 
between those two things. The gospel operating daily in our lives is what rescues us from legalism. So never forget what Christ has done, that we have no righteousness of our own. And when you ponder that, you will, again, your obedience will spring out of a heart of joy and gratitude. If you are too, so that's if you're a little heavy on that self-denial thing. If you're too heavy on the liberty and the freedom, obviously the danger is that you can fall into sin. You can become very worldly. And I've seen this. This is funny. Both these camps, they, they're at polar opposites, and yet they're guilty of the same thing, which is judging the other one. Okay? Some people, they think, oh, these people are too free. Oh, these people are too legalistic. So they're guilty of both that. When, you're, when it comes to parenting, be honest with your children as they're growing up. Don't teach them to live only by a set of rules. Again, there is a time for rules. And the younger they are, the more you need those. But as they grow, teach your children to study the Bible, pray for guidance in making their decisions, and apply biblical truth to the issues of life. Just teaching them a bunch of rules, that's the easy way out. And too many times when they get out of the house, I've seen people just fall off the cliff because they never learn to apply biblical truth to life. All right? All right, let's go on. Oh, one other thing. Uh, a lady that I heard teach said this one time. I thought it was great when it comes to, to young people and teens. She said, rules without relationship." equals rebellion and too often it does so make sure as your children are growing you moms out there build relationships with your kid you can have you can have rules but you want to build a strong relationship and not set the pattern for rebellion all right number three confronting and covering there's a balance here it's also you could call it the the balance between grace and truth there are several scriptures that tell us we have a responsibility to confront sin, but there are also times when we're told to cover sin, and I've given you those scriptures. Please study those. If you're too heavy on the confronting thing, you will become very prideful, very judgmental. Um, if you're too heavy on that covering, if you're always covering people's sin and you're afraid to confront, that reveals fear of man. It often reveals a lack of love because sometimes, honestly, ladies, the most loving thing you can do for someone is to tell them the truth. If you are withholding the truth from them, you're not loving them. When you do have to confront, as I mentioned about the modesty thing, go humbly, go lovingly, go with a genuine heart of concern for that person. Your attitude is critical. Number four, temporal and eternal Temporal means being concerned with things of the earth. Eternal is being concerned with spiritual things. Given you many scriptures there. Being mindful of temporal things keeps me realistic, involved, and responsible. And it reminds me also to be grateful for this world that God has given us, for the beauty of the earth, for just all that he's given us. But if you become so focused on earthly things, you will, you will lose the heavenly-minded perspective that we are told to have. 
In Colossians 3, it tells us to set our mind on things above. That old saying about, you know, he's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. Well, I don't want to be no earthly good, but believe me, we are to be heavenly minded. So the extremes there, if you are too temporally minded, you'll get very materialistic. This world is what really matters. You will worry about all those belongings you have. You're so worried you're going to lose them. You'll get excessively concerned about uh, issues and causes. Um, you know, the environmentalist, you know, they always say they're going to save the earth. And when I hear something like that, I just think, well, good luck. I mean, you're not going to save this earth. The earth is going to burn up as lovely as it is. So you got to be balanced there. I mean, I love a beautiful sunset. I love the, the just the beauty, you know, the green trees. But I don't go, yeah, I don't hug trees. I don't go hugging trees and, and marching for the baby seals and climbing up in trees so they won't cut them down. One of these days, this earth is going to be destroyed. So keep it in balance. On the other hand, don't be, believe it or not, you can be too eternally minded. If you neglect the beauty of what God has created, if you neglect your God-given responsibilities, you, you're not being balanced there. If you, you know, people can even be so, again, eternally minded, they can't weep with those who weep. They can't suffer with those who are suffering. And you can actually lack compassion with people that are going through great suffering. So be balanced. Okay, next category, inner man and outer man. There is a balance between the two parts of men. Remember what it says in 1 Samuel the Lord does not see as man sees. We look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the, the heart. We already talked about the heart. The inner man is crucial because, as Proverbs 4 tells us, out of the heart come the issues of life. But the Bible does comment on the outer man. And again, I've given you scriptures there, and we talked a lot about modesty. We can't ignore the outer man. We do have an outer body. So you have to be careful to keep that, um, that balance there. If you're so concerned with the inner man, you can become very introspective. You, you can become very self-focused. If you're too concerned with the outer man, you can be vain. You can be all about external appearance. So keep the balance. Another one, reality and hope. Now, let me define this. Reality has to do with thinking, with evaluation, with evaluating a circumstance, being realistic and seeing true situations, seeing the truth there, seeing it as it is. Hope has to do with faith and believing the best and believing people will change and things will get better. Now, my husband and I have had a running joke for about 37 years about optimism and pessimism. He says, I'm an optimist, and he's right. I am an optimist. I say he's a pessimist, okay? And he says, no, 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 I am not a pessimist. I am a realist. Yeah, see, you, you know. I'm going, no, you're a pessimist. I will say this. I think he's helped me be more realistic, and I think I've helped him be a little more optimistic, but there is a balance there. Uh, David, King David, he knew this balance all through the Psalms. You read a Psalm, he is in the depths of despair at the beginning of the Psalm. What happens by the end of the Psalm? Ah, 
He's praising God. I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. He had that balance. He was realistic about his situation, but he still hoped in the Lord. Um, I think of Paul in 2 Corinthians, where he has that passage. He said, he was hard-pressed, but he wasn't crushed. He was perplexed, but he wasn't in despair. He had found that balance. One of my absolute favorite Old Testament stories is the story of Elisha. And Elisha, this is back in the days of Israel and all those countries, and they were always attacking one another. They loved to fight. And so the Syrian army kept attacking Israel. Elisha kept telling the king where they were going to be. And so the Israel army would run over there and be waiting for him. So the king of Syria gets really upset, and he finds out it's Elisha, and he says, go get me that guy, Elisha. Okay, I'm fed up with him. Go get him. So they find Elisha, and he's in this little town called Dothan. And in the middle of the night, here comes the army. This big Syrian army surrounds the town. In the morning, Elisha's servant gets up and goes out and, you know, early in, I don't know, watering the camels or whatever they did early in the morning. Um, he's out there, and he realizes the army was there, and he panics. I mean, he's shaking in his boots. He runs back in. Alas, my master, the army's here. They're going to kill us. You know, we are history here. And I love Elisha. Elisha knows God. Elisha says, don't worry. I mean, Elisha's cool. Elisha's calm. He says, don't worry. They that are with us are more than they that are with them. And he, and he prays. He says, Lord, please open his eyes so he can see. And it says, and the Lord opened the eyes of the servant, and he saw that all around them, the mountains were full of horses and chariots of fire. The Lord's host, the Lord's heavenly army was there to protect them, and the servant couldn't see it. I mean, the servant thought he was being realistic. I mean, the Syrian army really was there, but he couldn't see what I call the real reality, and that was that God was there. So what is the balance here? It's optimistic realism or realistic optimism. Either way, keep a balance. No matter how bad your situation may appear at times, never forget that God is there. God is sovereign. God is powerful. God is always, he's always there, and he is the heart changer. He always brings good from bad, and there is always hope if you know the Lord. If you are a child of God, there is always hope. To say there is no hope is an attack on God's character, because he is a God of hope. All right, so don't go to the extremes on that. Uh, next one, thinking and feeling. There's a balance between our thoughts and our emotions. Our emotions are God-given, but we must not be controlled by them. We must learn to live by the truth of the Word of God. There is a place for passion. We should be passionate about the Lord. We should be passionate about our love for His Word, for the people in our lives. But we also have to be wise. We have to be thinking. We have to evaluate things. First Timothy tells us to be sober-minded. First Peter says, gird up the loins of your mind. So there is a place for that, but there's a place also for deep and passionate love. 
You know, as I've gotten older, I've realized, you know the bottom line of the Christian life? If you wanted to boil it down to one thing, what is a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? It means loving Christ. That is the bottom line. A Christian is someone who loves Christ. And so we should love him with everything we've got. So there is a point and a part of us that should be very emotional, but we cannot be ruled by our emotions. The last area is what I call striving and trusting. And this is huge. This is probably the biggest point we're talking about because it touches every part of life. And again, when I say striving, please understand, I'm not talking about salvation. Salvation is all of God. God draws us. He saves us. It's all of grace. We are not striving to be saved. I'm talking about, again, sanctification and living the Christian life. There are so many scriptures, and I've given you a whole list there, and I cut out about half of them that I had. It all talks about the balance between these two things. Colossians 1 says, I labor, that's my part, striving according to his working. Okay, we strive, but again, it's his working. He's working in us. Paul says, he planted, Apollos watered, but who gave the increase? God. The results are always in God's hands. You read back in Nehemiah in that wall. Remember they were building the wall? And he stationed the families on the wall. And then he's giving them that pep talk. And he says, remember the Lord and fight. So, yes, they were to remember the Lord. But he's saying, oh, yeah, and by the way, if, you know, fight like crazy if anybody attacks this wall. I mean, he gave them spears and swords and everything. So there's a balance between his part and our part. We have to be obedient. We do what we can, but we also have to learn to rest in the Lord and trust him for the results. You know, Mary and Martha, there's that picture of striving and trusting. You remember the story, and I'm so much more like Martha than Mary. I, I think we all, I think many times I'm usually talking to a lot of Marthas. You know, she's in there working in the kitchen, and Mary's sitting out on the front porch, and the more Martha did and the less Mary did, the madder Martha got. I mean, she's got the microwave going, and she's doing this, you know. And she finally, she couldn't take it anymore. She went out to the front porch, you know, and it's terrible the way she talked to the Lord. And she basically said, look, Lord, Mary's being lazy, and you're encouraging her, and I'm in here about to work myself to death, and I wish you would tell my sister to get in there and help me. If you want dinner, I mean, oh, she was terrible. Um, and the Lord was so gracious as he always, and he always went right to the heart of the matter. He said, Martha, Martha, you're bothered about so many things, but there's only one thing that matters, and Mary has chosen that. So striving and trusting, there is a balance there. Spurgeon said, Martha's fault was not that she served let us do all that we can. It was no fault of hers that she was busy preparing a feast for her master. Her fault was that she grew cumbered with much serving so that she forgot him. And she only remembered her ser service. Striving and trusting is very important to you mothers in parenting. You do all you can. You give, oh, there's nothing more important than raising your children. 
I worked for many, quite a few years before we had children. I did a lot of stuff out there, but I have never done anything more important than raising my four children. It's one of the hardest jobs in the world, but it's, there's nothing like it. You're affecting eternity. If you just give everything you've got to raising children and just praying constantly, they will love Christ, they will serve Christ. I'm telling you, there is nothing, nothing in this world that is more important than that. I heard a preacher say one time, pour your time and your life into the, the eternal things. And there's very few things in this life that are eternal. Pour it into your relationship with the Lord, into the Word of God, and into other people. Those things are eternal. All right, in conclusion, we must understand that the Christian life is just like a high-wire endeavor. We're called to cross this narrow thread, realizing there are dangers on either side that can plunge us into any spiritual type of disaster or despair. But there's a key to every successful high-wire act, and it's simple. When you're on the wire, you must keep your balance. Think about this. In any high-wire performance, what is the one thing you always see? It's the balance bar. You know that long bar that they hold that keeps them balanced? We have a balance bar, and that is the Word of God. The Word of God keeps us balanced. Jonathan Edwards said, Truly holy affections in a saint are balanced. The whole image of Christ is impressed upon them. In him is every grace, and he is full of grace and truth. He was the picture of a perfect balance. Let me close with a postscript to the Walinda family. One of Carl's grandsons is a man named Tino Walinda. Tino and his family continue the family tradition, performing their amazing act all over the world. In 1998, they went back to Detroit, where as an 11-year-old boy, Tino watched his father fall to his death. They went back 36 years later to the exact same arena and successfully performed the three-level pyramid. As Tino would say later, they wanted to show that disaster did not have to end in defeat. Now, I cannot speak for the entire Walinda family, and I'm not sure where all of them are coming from spiritually, but I do know that Tino professes his faith boldly in Christ. And many years ago, he wrote an article in a Christian magazine. This is what he said. When I was seven years old, my grandfather, Carl Walenda, put me on a wire two feet off the ground. He taught me all the elementary skills, how to hold my body, how to place my feet, how to hold the pole. But the most important thing that my grandfather ever taught me was that I needed to focus my attention on a point at the other end of the wire. I needed a point to concentrate on to keep me balanced. The ultimate focus of my life is Jesus Christ. The Bible says we need to focus our eyes on a fixed point. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. At one time or another, I've taken each of my four children on my shoulders as I've walked across the wire. In those situations, the children cannot do any balancing. 
I am the one who has to balance and support them. People have asked them, aren't you scared? No, they say. And when they've been asked, why aren't you scared? They have answered, because that's my daddy. They have confidence in me, because I'm their daddy. And I have confidence in my heavenly father. And I know that he will take me all the way across this chasm of life until I meet him face to face. So my prayer for all of us today, for me and for each one of you, is that as we walk across this chasm of life, as Tino called it, the Lord will keep us balanced through his holy word and will enable us to live lives that will bring glory to him. Let's close prayer. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.